You are listening to the Family Business Podcast, the podcast aimed at delivering insights to help your family business thrive. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and each week I'll be bringing you interviews from family businesses and their advisors from all over the world. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Well, hello and welcome to the Family Business Podcast. I'm delighted to be joined again today by Ian Marsh. Now, regular listeners to the show will know that Ian has been on the show before and we were talking about, uh, it was neurobiology, wasn't it, Ian? Yes. Uh, Which I mistakenly referred to as microbiology in a a few tweets, which I think is Yakult, isn't it? Microbiology. (laughs) Well, it's very good for you. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So we weren't discussing Yakult. We were, we were talking uh, for far more interesting things than that. Um, and we mentioned in that uh, podcast episode that you were partway through writing a book, mm-hmm. um, which has now been published. And um, you very kindly sent me a copy, which I have um, been through and, and find absolutely fascinating. So we are, we're going to talk about that today. Uh, and the topic of today's show is called, if it's so good to talk, why is it so hard? Um, which is also the title of the book. Um, but Ian, perhaps for the, firstly, thank you for, for agreeing to come back on the show. No, you're welcome. It's great to be here. And for those um, new listeners, obviously we get millions a week, um, if you could uh, perhaps introduce yourself and uh, a bit of background as to how you came to be doing what you're doing now. Okay, I started life as a lawyer and I've worked with family businesses and business families uh, throughout my career, but for a long part of it, uh, I found myself litigating a large number of huge family feuds, which from the lawyer's perspective was fascinating. Um, I'm not sure uh, it necessarily served the families really well. And it got me to thinking about better ways of addressing those issues. Mm -hmm. So Initially, I I trained as a mediator and started mediating the sorts of things I used to litigate, which is great. It's, it's, uh, when it works, it's a better way of, of doing, but, but my experience was very much that, um, a lot of the time we settled the litigation, but we never really got to the underlying, uh, disagreement between the family because there's only so much the law can apply itself to of course yeah and 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 part of what i discovered in course of that was if you could actually restore sensible level of communication between the the family members one of two things happened i either the the alleged offense went away because it was largely a construct to allow one person to beat the other uh-huh. um, or they were able to sort it out themselves and over time that got me thinking further what you know why is it that you know well-meaning well-educated smart people who actually love one another find it so difficult to talk about the stuff that matters most to them absolutely and and, and that really was the beginning of the path to, to, to this book, which is an exploration of, of that subject and what I've learned about it along the way, really. 
Yeah, and as I say, I, I've um, I've been through the book. I'm I'm going to reread it uh, and make uh, a huge number of notes as I I do so. And um, we'll get on to some of the um, sort of reflective practices that you suggested there as well. But I'm also going to make sure I go through um, all of those. But uh, again, just in terms of a, a kind of an overview of the book and and what you were hoping um, families will take from it. Well, what's the intention of it? Um, to get it out of my system is part of it. This is a book that demanded to be written, which I suppose lots of books do. Yeah. I, I think really uh, a lot of this is we, most of us think we're pretty good at this stuff mm -hmm. because we do it day in, day out for the whole of our lives without, often without giving it a thought. And yeah, we now know that we overestimate our abilities at most things. But very few people see this as a skill. Even when it's, I mean, fortunately, it's being taught more in schools now, which is a, uh -huh. which is a really good thing. But if you go back to the sort of classical education, you know, people were taught how to make speeches, how to be orators. They're taught how to debate, to argue. Uh, but not necessarily to have a conversation, and oh. neither of those things is 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 conversational. They both become more broadcast in some ways. So I I wanted to explore that and encourage people to to think about it, and I really would like it to help people become better at having those difficult conversations because. Oh. We might wish it to be otherwise, but we all have lots of difficult conversations we have to have as we go through life, with whether it's with family, with employees, co-workers, friends. Um, now and again, stuff happens, and it's usually better if we talk about it. Yeah, completely. Uh, and g given that we know that good communication um, is likely to lead to better outcomes probably in business and both in our, our relationships in general mm -hmm. uh, how do we start to measure <laughs> or, or understand what good communication looks like because as you say you, you mentioned people who are great speakers so martin luther king for example was a great speaker yeah uh, and and you could say he's a great communicator but but it, how do you define or measure what good communication looks or feels like well, I, th I think good communication in the sense I use it, which is why I often use the, the conversation word, particularly mm. in, in the book, is, is that it's, it's a multiplayer game. It's mm -hmm. Conversations are constructed uh, by the people taking part of them. I mean, I think Martin Luther King made some great speeches and they moved me and they moved a lot of people. And, you know, he... He probably had the effect on a lot of people he intended to to have, oh. but it was a one-way process. Oh. And I, I think within groups of people, I mean, there there are times when we need to do that, but within groups of people, it needs to be a a multiple process. And I think I think you know when you've had a communication that wasn't so good. Uh -huh. um, 
either because something's gnawing at you that you should be having one and you're not going there to do it, uh-huh. or, or you went there and tried to do it and you're feeling unsatisfied with it. Yeah, yeah I, it's difficult to apply a, a quantum metric to it. Uh-huh. But if I feel understood, then even if people disagree with me, um, that, that's, a, that's a good outcome. I mean, I, I think the number of mediations I've done where, you know, really the, the first thing people want is to feel heard uh-huh. uh, and to feel felt, if that makes sense. They, they want their feelings understood as yeah. well. Um, when you make me angry, yeah, there should be a constructive way, and there are constructive ways of me telling you that when you do X, yeah, this is the response it provokes in me, and oh. ideally why. And I think if both people to a conversation, yeah, have that sense that they've they've had their say, they've been heard, they've been understood, you may go your separate ways, agreeing to disagree. Yeah, but, but the stuff is on out in the open. Um, no, nobody's feels that they're having games played with them Uh Um, and it's you go away from it feeling more relaxed rather than more stressed yeah and you mentioned an example in the the book around one of your first webinars yeah if you're used to talking in in public as you do and interacting with the audience all of a sudden communicating to an audience you can't see and i'm very aware we're talking over um, the internet, the, the joy of the internet that, that allows us to be in different places and, and communicate still. Yep. But, but the, the example you give in the book around the webinar was, was interesting because it's an entirely different experience for you communicating to an audience you can't see, which presumably would change their experience compared to face-to-face or in the same room. I, I think so. I mean, I've, I've had... I know I've had people in audiences in front of me fall asleep. That's, that's, that, that happens. It's fine. Uh, and you can tell which people are engaging and which people aren't at any given, at any given point. And uh-huh. I've, I've also listened to plenty of webinars. And it's much, I find, it's much harder to keep focused when all I've got is, you know, a sound coming out of the screen mm. um, than if there's an actual human being in front of me. Completely. Uh, and and I, I think it's one of the challenges of education on, online. Uh, yeah, there's mm. research coming out about these, they call them massive online courses. Uh-huh. But yes, it's a means of getting content to huge numbers of people. But that's what it's focused on because that's what the technology is really, really good at. Yeah. It's not focused on uptake. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think when we're trying to have that conversation, we want some feedback that tells us there is uptake. Mm, completely. And we've mentioned that not being in the same room as somebody is a, a potential barrier to um, communication or good conversation. What are some of the other main barriers that you've experienced where people perhaps aren't as effective as conversing or communicating as they could be? Um, we are. Yeah, we, we get in our own way. Mm-hmm. I, I think we're, I mean, a rude way of putting it is that we're too full of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think it... it, it, it I mean, 
a lot of it for me, the, the, the thing that really spoke to me loudly when I was researching the book was uh, this theory of Stephen Porges, his polyvagal theory, which right. sounds fancy, but for these purposes is a, is a sort of re-expression of fight-flight. But, uh-huh. he, but he does it for me in a much more meaningful way in that he, he's, he's concluded through his lifetime's work that our default setting is to socialize. Uh-huh. Um, and when we get frightened, we mobilize. And we might mobilize by fleeing and we might mobilize by fighting. But, but one of the, some of the things that happen when we mobilize is that the, the muscles in our ears change. So we, we lose the ability to pick out one voice in a crowd. It's now just big noise that uh, gets to us. The, okay. the muscles in the face freeze, so we can't signal subtle emotion anymore. And yeah. equally, we can't. One of the ways we detect how somebody else is feeling is we we mimic their expression, and then our brain reads what we're doing. Okay. At, at least, I mean, that's part of it. We think. Yeah. Um, and you lose that ability because you. I mean, if you think about it, if you're if you're in the middle of a a battlefield the last thing you want from from that fighting perspective is to have empathy for the guy who's trying to kill you yeah because it's probably not oh, going to work out too well. his job. <laughs> yeah, <absolutely. laughs> yeah there's a time and a place sort of stuff. yeah and but all that stuff that you know when we get frightened in in the sort of uh, primal sense of being an animal then you know there's all these changes in our body and we cut off from the group and it all becomes about individual survival. Mm. Uh, and if we get super stressed and it's an existential threat, then we immobilize, as he puts it. And, and that can take lots of forms. It, it, it could be fainting. It could be um, dissociating. So you start developing another personality because your other one can't cope with this situation. And wow. And I find that, and there's other research as well that's shown that, you know, socialization is actually our primary mechanism. And if, and if you think about it, that has to be right. We're, we're demonstrably social animals yeah. and our young take such a long time to reach to maturity uh-huh. that if we didn't cooperate, yeah, they'd be, that, that wouldn't work out. Yeah. Um, so, so, so that's... Yeah, allowing that trip from socialization to mobilization is the biggest thing, I think. And Uh what it becomes expressed as in in the modern world isn't necessarily just fear. But if if you think in terms of having a certain bandwidth of stress that you can cope with, once the, the stress uses up your your bandwidth, then you're going to flip from social to mobilization. And right. so, so that's a big thing. Yeah. And, and, and I suppose the second big thing is all the pre-programming we've acquired over centuries, millennia, to help us solve problems really quickly. And in the modern world, they work out as yeah, prejudgments, uh-huh. assumptions, stereotyping, prejudices, and you can't help yourself. They're, I mean, these are going on at high speed in your subconscious uh-huh. brain. Um, but as, as somebody said, you know, all, all thoughts are real. They're not all true. 
Yeah. So you you need to use these things because they're there to help you, but you shouldn't just act on them on, on impulse. And because we spend so much of our lives on autopilot, that's what we tend to do. Mm. And I think uh, I'm right in thinking one of the, um, ref- I can't remember which uh, number of reflection it is, 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 is to just pause and appreciate what's around you. It's almost a mindfulness exercise where you, you understand how you're feeling and where you're feeling things and um, sort of smell and taste and, and things yeah. like that. And, yeah. and being present, I guess, is an, another way of doing your part to make sure that the conversation works. You can't necessarily control how present someone else is or um, how they can gauge whether you are. You can say, oh, I'm present here and then still gaze off into the middle distance. Yeah. Um, but but it, it's being proactive in terms of um, presence and listening helps on the other side of the um, conversation as well. Absolutely. I mean, I think the first job, if you want to be heard and felt, is to make the other people feel person feel safe uh-huh. so they stay in social mode. If, if the way you present trips them into mobilization mode it really doesn't matter what they were feeling like when they came into the room they've mm. stopped they've stopped listening and yeah. i think i mean one of the examples of that I, I i give in the book and it's not well it is a difficult it's a very difficult conversation it's the patient side of being told you have cancer uh-huh. you know so many people i've seen interviewed about that say that they you know they heard the c they knew what the rest of the word was and they heard nothing that the oh. doctor said for the next, you know, however long the the, the consultation went on. Yeah. And, you know, they needed somebody else with them to hear that because they were so shocked that they tripped out into, you know, I'm guessing they were in freeze mode by that point. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a gross example, but it, it sometimes doesn't take too much to trip us out like that, particularly if we're hungry, if we're angry, if we've got, you know, toothache, and, you know, all these things consume bits of bandwidth. Oh. Uh, so it takes less and less and less to, to, to push us over the edge. Yeah, and I think being aware of that as well, it can be tricky, but very important because if you're aware that, you know, I might be hungry, my blood sugar might be low, I might be tired, I might be, you know, a little niggle, um, toothache may, may be an obvious but, but if something just doesn't feel right that that's going to affect I think the, the example you use of bandwidth is a great one because it's it's something you can easily relate to if that's going to be using up your bandwidth the more you're aware of that the more you can perhaps try to um, make sure you have something to eat before you go into an important conversation for example yeah I mean it, it's 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 very on 21st century isn't it because we, mm. ju- we just press on regardless I mean yeah. I, I yeah I did something to a muscle in my neck the other week and it's very low grade pain sufficiently low grade that i wouldn't even bother taking a painkiller uh-huh. but if it's there the whole time you're awake for you know several days in a row i i noticed i was getting a little bit more tetchy with people yeah. than i might have been otherwise now i wasn't having really important conversations so it didn't matter so much but i yeah it wouldn't occur to me not to come to work uh-huh uh, but I have to interact with my colleagues. Yeah. So, yeah, either take the painkillers or let them know that you're a bit tetchy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and you mentioned uh, just, just a minute ago about 
feeling safe when we try to, to have conversations. And this is something that, it's an area that fascinates me because you, you can imagine most people would say, well, I feel safe in my place of work. So if we're, we're obviously family business podcast, if you're, it is your family business, it is somewhere that you've grown up in or you were founded that, that it, you could say you feel safe in the boardroom or you feel safe around the kitchen table. But it's not in, entirely just the physical environment that needs to feel safe, is it? It's, the, it's every element of, of the environment. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think safe is a, is a broad concept. I, I think the, I mean, I mentioned in the book David Rock's SCARF uh, analysis of, of social threats, which is status, certainty, autonomousness, relatedness, and fairness. Um, There are some things I might struggle to fit in one of those five boxes, but they cover an awful lot of territory. Mm. And just the the autonomy and the relatedness, we we have a need to fit in. Um, We also have a need to stand out. there are sometimes I've certainly worked with families where people feel they're, you know, they don't have sufficient autonomy. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, perhaps they're you know, in a younger generation at the moment, and they're feeling that they should be, you know, taking more lead in places, say, than 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 they're being allowed to. Uh, uh-huh. And then they're trying to juggle how how do I assert that without threatening my own relatedness, my my fitting in here. Mm. Um, that that can be a scary thing to try and balance. When when people feel whatever is happening is not fair, and and fairness is a isn't an emotional response. It's not an objective measurement. Uh-huh. But if you feel what's going on isn't fair then yeah, that, that burns up a lot of bandwidth fairly quickly because yeah. you, you do feel threatened by that. Mm. Um, and I think lots of people who, again, the autonomy, the sense of not being in control. Con- control is almost certainly an, an illusion. Mm-hmm. You know, what do we actually control um, other than our response to stuff? But... Yeah, there are times when you're in this family situation and you just feel like a passenger. Yeah. Uh, it's like being on a skid pad. There comes a point where you may be sitting at the steering wheel and you may have your feet on the pedals, but you are not affecting the direction of the vehicle. Yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and we feel the need to, to do that. Mm. So there are, there are all, all, all these things affect how we feel safe. But I, I think... For for me, the the starting point for feeling safer is to be able to recognise those things for what they are, which is, you know, broadly speaking, electrochemical impulses whizzing round your body. Uh-huh. They're doing so for a good reason. They're all designed to keep you alive and keep you safe, but probably. Yeah, we're more effective in a in an earlier age, yeah. and yeah, it comes back to again the notion that your your thoughts and your emotions and your sensations that they're, they're all real. You have to deal with them, oh. but, but they they aren't you, and they don't necessarily make your decisions unless you let them. Yeah, and so when you're working with 
families and they've come to you presumably in a as a mediator to say this is our issue how do you then go about creating that environment where you hope to maximize their ability to feel so I'm doing inverted commas with my fingers, which again is one of, <laughs> one of those things you can't, you can't get with the, the benefit of the internet. Yeah. But, but to feel safe, if you like. Sure. I mean, I, I think it depends on the context in which it arises. If it arises where I am in a mediator type role where there is some existing conflict that they have been struggling to deal with, that the first thing that I'm going to do is meet with each of them one-on-one -on -one and uh, give them a thorough listening to so that uh -huh. they have the experience of actually being heard uh, and, and understood. And, and it's, it's one of the things that surprised me when I started developing my mediation practice was just how much of an impact that can have on somebody. Yeah. That it, it, it does open them up. And, and, and I, yeah, having, having done all this research for the book now, it, it, I believe it opens them up because they work out relatively quickly that they can say whatever they want to say. Uh, and they're not going to be judged and oh. I'm not going to tell them what they should be doing. Um, and I'm going to respect their confidence. Uh, so they feel really, really safe. Uh, and and I, my experience is that once people have had that experience themselves, they're much more open to trying to provide it to somebody else. Hmm. And then, so when you bring people together, they've all had that experience, hopefully, uh -huh. and you set some ground rules around the way people speak because within fam fam families so often fall into stereotype. Yeah. And they're stereotypes that are often set you know, at the last point in time when everybody lived together. So uh -huh. you know, one's a joker, one's the problem solver, one's the mediator and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And when you get stressed, it's much easier to fall back into stereotype than it is to be there and you know, deal with the monster in the room. Uh -huh. uh, but if you can keep people reasonably relaxed if they're in conflict that's that can be a challenge but you know you have periods of relaxation during the session and and people say what they have to say and hopefully get get heard i think uh -huh. if you're starting with a family that isn't in you know sort of acute conflict then i think you would approach it in a different way and you know have more of a perhaps more of a workshoppy approach to uh -huh. talking about, you know, what, what are the conversations they have, why do they find them difficult, uh, and, you know, get them to explore it them, themselves. Yeah. Uh, and just um, going back to something you mentioned right at the outset in terms of your previous role uh, as a litigator, I, I'm imagining, I, I've not been in, I've been in a couple of litigation scenarios, but, but, but nothing too sort of dramatic, but I'm imagining that the, the skill set that you had as a litigator is potentially different to that that you need to employ as a mediator. <laughs> because you're kind yeah. of, I might be doing litigators a disservice, but with the litigation, you're taking a side of an argument and trying to, to get that to come to fruition. Whereas with a mediator, you're trying to balance the two sides of a, 
uh, an argument. Would, would that be a fair assumption? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I view them as entirely different skill mm. sets. Um, because yeah. I mean, there is that point that, that you make that a, a litigator is by definition partial. Um, there's a lot of talk around mediation about neutrality. Uh -huh. a, but that in itself is contentious because there are many people who don't accept that a human being is capable of being neutral. Uh -huh. And I mean, it's certainly right. If you pick a group of people who are in a fight and you spend time with each of them and then you spend time with them together, there will be some that you like more than others. Uh -huh. it's, it's, it, that's just the way we are. It's a nature of humanity, isn't it? Well, I think it is, yeah. So, so I, I talk about being you know, non-partisan in, in what I do. But I think what, I mean, if, if you look at the mediation style intervention, it's process. And, you know, it's the, it's the family's conflict. I provide a process. And the uh -huh. process hopefully provides a safe space in which they can say what they need to say and come to well-informed decisions. Other people, I mean, there are lots of schools of mediation and some people see the mediator's role as a sort of turbocharged negotiator. Uh -huh. And I think that can work really well in you know, commercial context and probably in some diplomatic context too. But it, it's, it, it, it's horses for courses, I think. And, yeah. and uh, as I say, the, the key to this for me is for people to be able to have their say and, and, and feel heard about it. Mm. Fantastic, thank you. Um, looking again at, at where we were talking about effective communication, effective conversation, um, part of that is to feel able to challenge, but also to, to be challenged. I think some people are probably more happy with challenging than being challenged, but, but that, that might just be my experience. Um, <laughs> But, but if we're not comfortable with feeling challenged, again, are there anything, is there anything that we can be doing to think, okay, this is just a moment in time in, in no matter how important it feels at this time, it, it may sort of seem insignificant in five years' time, but what, you know, how can we get over the fact that we don't like being told we're wrong or that, that we might be wrong? Yeah. <clears throat> They say nothing's ever as important as you think it is when you're thinking about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I, I think the answer is probably to try and get past the notion of wrong. Mm -hmm. um, the, the fact that you and I might see a particular issue differently mm -hmm. doesn't make me right and you wrong or you right and me wrong. It yeah. means we see things differently and there will be reasons for that now yeah you know, it is it is the arc of conflict that goes from you know we we disagree i'm right you're wrong i'm human you're subhuman mm -hmm. it, it's it's the it's the spiral that goes down very quickly but i think if you if you can start getting past that to just you know we we all experience the world differently uh -huh. And we can't not experience the world differently. And I think it's just the way we are. And, you know, in many ways, it, it, it's absolutely crucial to us as a species. If we were all uh -huh. the same, we'd have died out at some point. I think. Um, so, I mean, I think we finished the last conversation we 
we we had with with curiosity mm. uh, and, and i think you know i sort of come back to that it, it's well it's partly in the reflective exercises but but those are an exercise in curiosity in themselves i mean just beginning to explore where your own views and beliefs come from yeah is really useful because mm. um, most people discover that you know they they didn't work them all out for themselves and yeah you know, some people feel manipulated when they discover that <laughs> and some people have been manipulated you know <laughs> it happens but, yeah. but but i think that's just it's one of the oddities i think about the conversation process you 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 want to be heard so you have to make the other person feel safe mm. but you can't and to do that you have to pay attention to them you have to be present for them yeah. but it's really different difficult to be present for somebody else if mm -hmm. if your head's full of your own stuff so yeah. all the work actually starts with you mm. Um, and if you're uncomfortable being challenged, that's a great thing to look at to start with, isn't it? Why? Yeah. Why, why is it that you're uncomfortable being challenged on this particular thing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even if you were wrong, if that was meaningful, how, why, why would that, you know, how would that ruin your life? Mm. Yeah, would you, would you even remember in five minutes' time, let yeah. alone five years' time? Yeah, that's the thing. I, 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 obviously, I, when we do the podcast, we send episode plans that kind of outlines the, the questions that we uh, outlined. Um, just, just before the show, um, or just before we went live, I started jotting down some um, notes on why we feel nervous when we're about to voice our, our opinion. Because our, our opinion should be as valid as anyone else's. Yeah. And yet there are some people who are, are very comfortable in voicing it and there are others that feel entirely nervous about either being exposed or feeling vulnerable or feeling threatened or that they, they will be challenged. Um, and again, that, from what you're saying, it's, it would be very, very interesting to look at why that might be the case. Yeah. I mean, I mean there's some obvious stuff. I mean, particularly, I would say, in, in the current environment there are views that you know some individuals will hold that do not chime with the rest of society uh -huh. uh, or those around you and we are in a world now where that can provoke quite a, an aggressive response Mm -hmm. I mean, it's sort of passive-aggressive in that it's probably on social media rather than... Yeah. But, you know, I, a threat on social media may not have the immediacy of somebody standing in front of you, but it's a threat and it's scary. Yeah. Um, but should you stop expressing views you genuinely believe in? Um, sometimes mm. you will and someday... I mean, the answer is it depends, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it's... But you, we don't have too much experience in judging that anymore. Uh -huh. And I think that where do you go now to have, to learn that skill of having, having a discussion? I mean, it's, it's all online and online yeah. is different. Yeah. Different, different, different rules apply. 
Yeah. They're not very healthy rules a lot of the time, mm. I would and say. You can take an awful lot out of context as well, can't you? Some, yes. miss, if they're just bad at grammar, then all of a sudden it it changes the the meaning of a tweet entirely. There's a yeah. famous one which I won't won't um, read out because I'd have to put an explicit warning on the, on the show again. <laughs> but there's a, bit, a, a particular one that I think is quite well known um, that, that highlights that. But I, I, I think also we... We tend to think of, you know, accents have connotations um, and prejudgments associated with them. Mm -hmm. I think accents have died out a lot since I was young, you know, probably because of TV and so on. Right. Um, but there are different versions of English. I mean, there's lots of discussion going on at the moment about what will be the effect of the UK leaving the EU on mm -hmm. European English. Um, and how that will develop as a separate language. Mm. Uh, yeah, if I travel abroad around the so-called English-speaking world, yeah, American English isn't English English. Indian mm -hmm. English isn't English English. Um, yeah. they're, they're perfectly valid languages. But when people from both sides come together, they may use the same word to mean different things. Mm -hmm. And um, we live in such, yeah, certainly the urban population lives in highly multicultural environment. Um, and you need to be aware of those things, those things also. The, yeah. you know, there's lots to this beyond the words, but words have power. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so given what we know in terms of the the fact that the likelihood of having a difficult conversation isn't that the world is going to end as a result <laughs> unless again between two particularly prominent world leaders at the moment they, <laughs> they started chatting that could happen um but 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 it fascinates me still and I, i'm guilty of this myself but why we avoid conversations that are clearly about something that is important because if it's something that didn't really matter you wouldn't you wouldn't be anxious about not having that conversation or having that conversation. So it's, it's clearly that there's things out there that are important to talk about. Yet we tend to avoid that and think, oh, well, well the time's not right for that chat now. And, you know, I'll, I'll leave it till tomorrow or never, as the case may be. Yeah. Uh, it just fascinates, fascinates me as to why we do um, seemingly silly things like that. Yeah, I, th I think a lot of it is fear. I mean, it, it, it's the fear of being judged you know, what, what is it they say why why keep silent and why keep silent and be thought a fool when you know speak and prove it sort of thing yeah. <laughs> um, and, and yeah we have this concept in in our language of yeah can I ask a stupid question well, mm. How can a question be stupid? If you don't yeah. know the answer, the only way you're going to find out is to ask the question. Yeah. Yes. So where does that come from? I mean, mm. how, does, how does that, you know, because I've used that since I was a kid in junior school, I would guess. Yeah. I, I mean, I hesitate to blame a teacher, but it came from somewhere. And I have in me this notion that there is such a thing as a stupid question. Mm. Now, largely, I've got over it. But I still use the term, yeah, can I ask a stupid question? Yeah. Uh, even though if somebody else said it to me, I'd say there's no such thing. Just ask a yeah. question. Yeah. Um, so, so there is something, I think, cultural 
there. But we don't like to be seen as foolish. We don't, even before likes and dislikes in social media, you know, we want to fit in. So we don't necessarily want to express the view that will you know, put us on the margins of the group, where, where the group is the place we're meant to feel safe. Mm. Yeah, you know, one of the ways we used to get around this I suppose, is go to the pub, have a few pints and talk politics. Yeah. Uh, but does that happen now? Uh, not as much, I don't think. Uh, and, and no, I, I think there's much more likelihood that people would gather with like-minded people. So you wouldn't perhaps get, you know, people of diverse views having that discussion, enjoying the discussion for what it was worth, then going home and, yeah, you know, ne next day... Well, we, we all had different views, but so what? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I used I used to go to the polling booth with my dad, and we used to cancel each other's votes out for a, <laughs> for a long time. But, but we had an interesting discussion going there and coming yeah. back, and it didn't offend anybody that we had different views. Um, that's becoming, I think, that becomes harder if your self worth comes from the number of likes you get, yeah. be, be it on social media or or in a you know, face-to-face -face situation. Yeah, and there is that now. The, the social media has been politicised. It's, it's very prominent in the press now that, you know, there, there's talk of it being targeted at people d depending on the answers to their quiz on, on a Facebook page and, and things like that. So, so those conversations where you would have the, perhaps the awareness to know when your opinion may be getting a bit too heated, you... you you can make a conscious decision to step back from that in a face-to-face -face environment. When you're sat behind a keyboard and you're tapping away or tapping away on your phone and giving your opinion, it, it's very easy, to, again, to be perceived in, in a way that you wouldn't intend. Yeah, I mean, I mean there's, 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 there's two things that the research shows, interestingly, is that when we don't have the feedback from, from a face-to-face -face interaction, we do far less self-editing. When you're talking, you're picking up subliminal signals that this is having this impact or that impact on the person you're talking to. So you moderate what you say. You don't okay. get that if you're, if you're doing it certainly on a text-based system. But, but, but even, with, even with a video system, if I'm sitting here at, at my iPad, say, um, then if we're having a video call to, to look as though I'm making eye contact with you, I actually have to look at the camera. Yeah. So <laughs> it's not, it's not in your eyes. So I'm not picking up the signals in your face. <laughs> uh, and if I look at you rather than the camera, I can look shifty. Because mm. you get it on interviews on TV where you know, somebody who's not used to being interviewed, they don't know whether to look at the, <laughs> at the reporter or the camera. And they yeah. send a lot of mixed signals. Yeah, and I find myself looking at myself on a Skype call, for example, to see where I'm looking. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, ah, it's so fulfilling. Um, so, yeah, that, I think that's that's really interesting. And, and uh, another area that it, it, I, it blows my mind, rather than, than it being fascinating, it, it, and you pick it up in the book, it is the Neolithic and, and digital brain. Yeah. And if I can paraphrase, basically our evolution to get our brains to where we are today has taken millions of years, mm -hmm. billions of years. Our evolution in terms of the technology that we work with 
is the the blink of an eye in comparison. Yeah. And yet we're expecting this this mass, this object to to be able to cope with that. And I I still can't understand how a microchip works. It, it it doesn't matter how many times somebody explains to me that this little grain of sand can do billions of calculations. It will never make sense to me. <laughs> uh, and but that's what we're asking our brains to do when it comes to modern society and the way in which we communicate. Is we're trying to, to to get this thing to understand just because there's an elite that have created the that do understand this um, the science side of it. I just find it entirely fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think it is a big a big challenge because, as you say, the amount of data. I mean, the fascinating part, part for me is that you know, the, no, nobody knows because it's soft tissue and it and it degrades. But mm. but the view is that you know the brains we're born with are pretty much identical, mm. and and what's different is the neural connections we make as we grow up. You know, to the point that the adult brain of a digital native and a Neolithic person would be yeah, almost incomparable. Mm. Um, and they do very different things um, because the, the amount of data that you know, the Stone Ager is taking in is, is just so much less. Yeah. Um, and their requirements are different because they're, they're thinking about I need food and shelter and the basic stuff. And we are fortunate in, in, in where we live. We can take some of that for, for granted to a certain extent. And yet our brains need to still be stimulated, need to, to still have things to do. Well, we, we do need to stimulate them, but what we do is overstimulate them. Yeah. We, you know, we have these screens that have how many pixels flashing on and off the whole time, yeah. and we have headphones on and the volume cranked up to 11, and, and all the rest of it. it mm. it's, it's, a, it's, a lot to, it's a lot for a little brain to cope with. Completely. Completely. Um, you talk in your, your book, and we've mentioned a couple of times about using reflection exercises. Mm -hmm. What are the benefits to us for doing that? I think perhaps if there's an, a, a neuroscience benefit or a, an emotional benefit to it. Then I, I, I think there are lots of benefits, but it depends which exercise you're, you're doing. I I suppose if you if if you start with the the simple act of monitoring the breath, just oh. sitting quietly and focusing on your breath wherever you experience it, you become aware of two things. One, it's quite difficult. Uh -huh. uh, it sounds as though it should be easy, but the harder you try, the more your brain will go off and do something else. Yeah. Um, so, you, A, you, you learn in the start that you're not necessarily in control of what's going on at this fairly basic task. Uh -huh. um, and, but as you practice, you probably spend more and more time, some days, on your on your breath and that's you then start seeing that you know this breath and that breath are completely different they're different lengths oh. they're different depths they're different 
textures, they're different temperatures, they're different colors. Um, so nothing stays the same for long. Uh, and it then helps you develop focus. Uh, uh, and that act in itself, if you're going to learn to focus on a person you're talking with, uh, with all your attention for a period of time, then you know, that's, that's a skill that you have to develop. And uh. you know, fortunately, if strangely, you know, just focusing on something, be it your breath, be it your hearing, be it you know, the sensations in your hands, you can pick many things to focus on. That's the starting point for developing that, the focus that becomes presence. Uh. So I think that's a really useful thing. And I think, you know, going on, we go into an exercise of just being aware of the physical sensations, emotions, and, and, and thoughts that are going on in the body. And just, again, how constantly they change, how little you are. I mean, I often find that if I'm silly enough to look at my emails just before I sit to do this, then for the, uh -huh. for the first half of the time, yeah, that's probably what's going to dominate my thought patterns. Yeah. But you know, you're, you're formulating your responses almost yeah, as you're, yeah. you're talking. But if, if I then sort of bring my attention to my breath, then that all goes away. And who knows what's going to appear in your head. Uh -huh. uh, it can be, you know, sometimes it's just peace, which is... Uh, I know some people are scared by the idea of a, a mind at peace, but yeah. I, I like it. Um, uh, but I don't expect it to last forever. And yeah. Um, yeah, it's a few seconds here and there, and it goes away, it comes back. Uh, and then if you start getting uh, sensations or emotions that won't go away, then, then you can begin to explore them. And I, I describe this uh, RAIN technique in, in the book of you know, recognizing what it is and accepting that it is what it is and then starting to investigate it. And I've, I've used that as a, as a pain management technique. I've used it as a way of exploring you know, coming difficult conversations because I am rehearsing them over and over. And I, well, why, why am I doing that? Why am I, as you put it earlier, why am I? Yeah, scared of having that conversation. Uh, um, so it provides a, a structure with, with, in which you can, with, within which you can do that. And I think, yeah, I also look at the book at journaling and, and so on. Uh -huh. and, and I, again, I found that a really useful way of doing some of that exploration the, the yeah. idea of exploring you know where do my ideas come from on this yeah you know, why does this person see them differently and where might their ideas come from um mm. yeah you know. journaling's a, a really interesting one because i, I find with journaling is that there's a an initial um sort of peace of mind if, if you're the, the, the one I do is, is relatively structured in, in it. I, I complete the same things. But but the value comes from then looking back to, say, this time last year. Yeah. And then thinking, well, you know, what was I worried about at that point that I can't even remember now, that, let alone uh, I'm slightly concerned about. But at the time, it's stuff that really takes up space and, as you say, in your bandwidth. Yeah. That, um, you know, it's not necessarily 
healthy, but but the act of journaling is a way of um, reflecting on that, which I, I find very helpful. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you, do you do it with a keyboard or do you do it with a pen and paper? Uh, I do it with a, a pen and paper. Yeah. Because um, I, I find it's... It's almost part of a bedtime routine. Yep. Where where you sort of a nine o'clock ish. Um, uh, I'm not as as disciplined as I used to be, but <laughs> but I would put on um, sort of t- ten minutes of meditation. Um, I think you can just stick it into YouTube ten minute meditation video or something, uh, and it's, it's somebody taking you through some breathing exercises, um, and then after that doing a journal to, to jot down what's happened throughout the day and, and what we're grateful for. Uh, and then it kind of sets you up for, um, for bed. Yep. Um, as I say, I'm not as disciplined as I used to be on it. So it, it does tend to slip slightly now more, more than it used to. But again, looking back and, and reading through um, some of the things that you, you noticed throughout the day, 18 months ago or, or a year ago, I find interesting and um valuable because it's you think oh yeah okay that was how I was feeling then was it I I perhaps wouldn't have said that if I didn't have the journal to reflect back on because I'd have no record and I'd just assume everything was the same as it is now yes yes I think we we um we're constantly rewriting history yeah (laughs) both both in history textbooks and in our heads Um, (laughs) and, and as you say it's probably not the facts that you're trying to record it's mm. it's your your response to them almost yes. but, but but i i i find it i don't i mean i i, I literally do maybe three or four lines a day on a mm. on, on a median day I, I i should think but it as you say it's it's the difference from day to day it's the difference you know what preoccupies me one day and seems you know i've, I've got to deal with this above all else yeah, it's the only day in the week it comes up. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I, I think it's and, – and using the pen and paper, I, I, I do both. And there are some okay. areas where the, the keyboard works well for me and others, I, th- I think, the act of writing in the old-fashioned way. I mean, it, I, the research says it uses a different part of the brain and it oh, okay. draw, draws in more of your uh, – more of your right hemisphere activity, which is heavily involved in creativity and emotion and so on and so forth. So it- right. Mm, very interesting. And, and talking about creativity and imagination, one of the reflective um, practices you suggest is daydreaming, yep. which, again, can seem counterintuitive because I, I remember daydreaming quite a lot as a child. <laughs> probably not in the right places um and you would be told off for it yeah you'd be right concentrate stop daydreaming get on with your i remember that too whatever whatever (laughs) it was and i guess as we grow older and into adulthood from childhood where daydream perhaps is it comes a bit more naturally we're taught it's, it's a it's a bad thing to do it's not something that we should be indulging in because it's a distraction from what we should be doing but I think, uh, uh, having read it, uh, I would like to try again to, to try and daydream. I, I, I'm so out of practice, or, or so um, it's been so long since I've consciously been uh, aware of it. I'm not sure how I would know. But <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a fascinating. I was fascinated to discover this research about what they call the default network, which mm. tells us that 
our brain, parts of our brain are more active when we're doing nothing than when we're focusing on doing something. Okay. And it, but the minute we focus, that clicks off. And, and, oh. and the, the consensus seems to be that this activity is when the brain is doing its housekeeping. So it's, it's the process that you need to make sense of the world and, and to keep rewriting your personal narrative so that it oh. isn't too uncomfortable for you. So, yeah. and, and I have actually seen uh, research papers suggesting that you know, kids should not be discouraged from staring out of the window in, the, in a classroom. And it's actually far better from them than, than using social media in the middle of the class. Um, yeah. So I, I've, I've gone back to it. I mean, I, being based in and around London, I, I have a daily commute. Uh, and, and that's actually an ideal time to uh, just either stare out the window or let your eyes rest on the antics of those around you without yeah. you know, thinking about it. So it, yeah, it is, yeah, I, I think, it, yeah, the loss of open fires to stare into probably makes it a little harder. <laughs> yeah, go down the laundrette and look at a washing machine. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? <laughs> uh, well, it's certainly going to be one of the things that, that I try um, because I think that there's an awful lot in um, the book. As I say, it, it's it's fascinating. It, it, it draws you in, uh, and uh, you mentioned at the outset of the book you do it in a conversational style and uh, a narrative style, which which I think suits it um, really, really well. Good, so we'll we'll, um, we'll put a link in the show notes as well if people want to check out the um, the book in a bit more detail. Um, but, but given the conversations we've had, uh, and uh, I think you know what question's coming in, in terms of we've, we've already referenced the answer from last time, but if you had a tip that you could give to family businesses who might be looking at the ways to help improve their communication, firstly, is there a tip, <laughs> a single one? <laughs> I'm very aware of what we've said during the, the um, episode that... There probably isn't one single thing to do, but where, where's the starting point, I guess, is, is where we're trying to get to of trying to encourage and celebrate um, good communication. I, I think the notion that we might do something about it I mean, is, is itself a, a huge step. I, I think the trick is to see it as changing lifestyle, this, okay. this is this is changing the way you eat, not going on a diet. Yeah. Um, obviously, the more you put into it, the more you get out of it. But there, I think there are two ways of looking at it at the, at the sort of family level. One is, you know, what, what can each individual do that might either give them more bandwidth or make them more resilient to the, to the demands on that? bandwidth oh. uh, and and the exercises in the book individually will help develop that uh -huh. um, there are things that I think any group of people can do which I look at more in the like the last two chapters of you know, how a group of people can create a space which is sort of communication friendly uh -huh. uh, and that comes back to a, a in, in some ways, there are a, a lot of the things that, that you know, 
successful business families do anyway, which is, you know, shared value systems, uh, uh -huh. which actually requires both behavior and conversation because the next generation is not going to pick up your value system if you don't tell them what it is. Uh, exemplars are good too, but you know, there are conversations there to be had, spending time together, uh, actually spending time communicating. You know, yeah. it's, it's, you know, if we're going to say it's a skill, then, then you need to practice and, yeah. and don't get too wound up about it. Uh. Um, yeah, there will be times. I've, yeah, I've, I've studied this. I've researched it. I've written a book on it. I try. It's what I do for a living, uh -huh. um, and I still get ratty with people. I yeah. yeah there are days where that's going to happen, but hopefully it happens less often. Hopefully it's you know one bounces back quicker with with practice um but yeah there is no world where every f I, I don't think the end of this is perfect communication i i think no. the journey is better communication yeah um, i agree because as you say if if you're seeking perfection and and you think right i've, I've done all these things and i'm gonna have this perfect conversation and it just doesn't go the way you think. It's very easy to go, well, oh, sod it, I won't do that again. Well, it's, it's, I'll go back to the old way, yeah. <laughs> ignoring it all, forgetting it's, it in the As somebody once said, adopt, adapt, and improve. Absolutely, <laughs> yes, indeed. That's the motto for, motto for round table. It, it is. It's also featured in a Monty Python sketch. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, Ian, thank you so much again for... Um, your time and and for agreeing to come on the the show again. No, you're very the, the conversations we have are are, are fascinating. It's, it's a subject matter that, as I say, it blows my mind. But the the, the book is a way of um, accessing it in a in a really accessible way. So um, again, thank you for for that as well. Um, how can our audience find out a little bit more about you? Um, probably the quickest way is go to the website, which. Uh, is now www.goodtotalk, two is a numeral, dot online. Uh -huh. And so. there's various materials there and, and strangely a button marked by now. Uh, excellent. <laughs> we, we will link that up in the, the show notes. And also you're on Twitter as well, aren't you? So, I am, yes. Um, we, we were discussing the, the merits of social media and... and <laughs> Um, what have you earlier, but if people do want to reach out, there there is a way um, to, to get hold of you there as well. Surely. Fantastic. Well, as I say, we'll, we will link that all up in the show notes. Um, and uh, thank you very much indeed for your time and your uh, input today. No, thank you. That's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to leave us a review, please feel free to do so on iTunes if you want to get in touch you can find out more information at www.fanbizpodcast.com we'll see you again soon